Welcome to your neighborhood puppeteer's favorite podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, where we continue this series of spring short episodes. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education and Community Engagement with the Kansas City Symphony. So as you heard last week, Jason, Mike, and myself are each going to be sitting down with a guest who has enriched our artistic lives in some way. Last week's episode, of course, featured Jason with his friend and mentor, Teddy Abrams. And this week, I have the pleasure of chatting with a truly inspiring gentleman who I've had the pleasure of working with several times, and I am continuously in awe of his creativity, his compassion, and his love for the arts. He and I share a deep passion for arts education specifically, so please welcome to the show the Director of Education for Medicine Puppet Theater, Mr. Alex Espy. Welcome, Alex. Uh, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited <laughs> to see you. Yeah, virtually. I'll take it. Until further notice, until we can get back together, I'll take virtual. Absolutely. So, um, you know, you and I know each other pretty well, um, considering we've worked together with the symphony several times over the last 10 plus years. Um, but for those who don't know you, can you just give us a little background on kind of your where you've come from, or where you're from, what your education experience has been, and kind of what led you to where you are right now? Sure. I, I feel like it, it just has to go back to the very beginning, back to, <laughs> to little baby Alex. Uh, my, my father was the manager of a lumberyard. And so I had access to wood and nails and tools and things like that. So I was three, four years old, making sculptures, wooden sculptures, uh, inundating our basement with all of these art projects that I had made. I mean, I was maybe four years old using power tools. And so awesome. I was, uh, I, right? <laughs> it was awesome because I also understood the safety component. and. Uh -huh. Uh, so I was always creating and um, always expressing myself artistically. And uh, it wasn't until, oh, maybe like 10 or 11, um, theater found me. Uh, I did not find theater. I, uh, I resisted it. Um, I was, it was, I think it was around summertime. And I was not doing a whole lot other than just sitting in front of the TV and not doing a whole lot of social things. And my parents kept on trying to find something for me to do that was social. I was not interested in sports, uh, was not interested in Boy Scouts or any of those other typically social things. Mm -hmm. uh, and then one day during the summer, the mail came and uh, there was a piece of mail for a theater school, a summertime theater school. Oh, I saw that. I knew what my parents wanted to do. So I threw it in the trash can. <laughs> and then and time went by before my parents came home from work, I was like, oh gosh, I'm going to get in trouble for throwing that thing away. So I took it out of the trash. I'm so happy that I did because uh, they enrolled me in these theater classes and I resisted. I did not want to do it. I was, I was literally kicking, screaming and crying on the way to my first class. But after one hour, I was a completely transformed person and I found my way that I could socialize with people. And so I quickly submersed myself in theater and I went to college for it. And uh, eventually I found myself here in Kansas City. Mm. And I've been in Kansas City now for about maybe 15 years, mm -hmm. um, uh, doing lots of things in the theater and the art world. Uh, I moved here to be in a coterie show. Okay. I had, um, I had been doing some educational theater tours with this company out of Minneapolis. And I thought, okay, Alex, um, 
you gotta you gotta see what else is out there in this world. And I had always heard of the Coterie Theater being in the children's theater world, and they had a little write up in Time Magazine. Uh, the top five children's theaters in the country. And I remember seeing that article, seeing the Coterie picture, thinking, I want that so bad, but I'm never going to get it. I'm never going <laughs> to get an opportunity to work at the esteemed Coterie Theater. And so what I did was I went to their general auditions with the Coterie and the Unicorn, mm -hmm. and I did not think anything else about it. I said, Alex, this is your main goal, just to go audition, and if nothing happens, nothing happens. I went and I did another educational theater tour, and right when I came back, I got a call from the Coterie to audition for one of their main, for one of their season shows. And I did not tell anyone. I told, I think, my family, but no one else, because again, I thought, never am I going to be able to work with the Coterie Theater. Uh, I auditioned for them. 24 hours later, they called me. Do you want the part? Yes, <laughs> yes, I want the part. And uh, Jeff Church, who offered me the role, he said, um, a lot of times out-of-town actors will just crash on people's couches and this and that. And through the course of talking with him, he basically said, he, he just, you should come move here. Just come live in Kansas City. And that's what I did for uh, essentially for one role, Tales wow. of a Fourth Grade Nothing. Uh, I moved to Kansas City, but quickly, and I'm so appreciative that I came to this market with an opportunity as opposed to moving here and trying to find the opportunities. So with the foot in the coterie door, quickly I started teaching and I started uh, working on the design teams for shows at the coterie. And so really quickly, things started to snowball and I'm just so appreciative of that. So I'm curious as a fellow um, transplant here in Kansas City, because I've um, let's see, we're going on 10 years here. So we've been here, you know, a similar amount of time. I'm curious if you had a similar experience to mine in that when we came here, it was kind of this weird, I, I moved here from Texas, my husband and I moved with our six month old son. And it was kind of, again, one of those like leap of faith things, you know, we uprooted ourselves, we came for this job that I have here. But it was like when we got here, it, Kansas City just immediately felt like home to us. And and we had lived in our where where we had come from. We had been there for I don't know eight or nine years, you know. So it's not like we were never established anywhere. But this community, and especially the arts community, is so welcoming and so strong and supportive that it's always felt like home. Have how, Did you have a similar experience in that? Uh, definitely. I, I am so appreciative that in general, the arts community is just so supportive and, and open. And, you know, you hear horror stories of other markets and other cities where, you know, maybe it's a little, it's gotten a little too big and uh, the size of it makes it um, hard to penetrate mm -hmm. And it makes it hard for you to find your way through that arts community. But I feel like, especially having come at the time that I did, I came at just a real great sweet spot mm -hmm. where it wasn't too big. It was very welcoming. It's it's still welcoming. But it I came at a great time of growth yeah. and I didn't fully understand it. The Kaufman Center was being built. And that's another thing. I looked at that center being built. I, I thought, nope. Never, 
Never will I be able to perform on either one of those stages. And here you uh, are. And here I am today, having done it multiple times. But yeah, I'm just so thankful that the art community in general is just so welcoming. And Kansas City in general, it's just such a laid back place. It has a great cost of living. And, you know, when you move to a new place, a lot of times it can feel unfamiliar for a very long time. And I was amazed at how quickly I could settle into a place for like sure. this. So I'm glad that you brought up the Kaufman Center because, uh, you know, you and I have, have gotten to work together several times in the Kaufman Center now. And, you know, you mentioned this kind of collaborative spirit between arts organizations too kind of exists. You know, everybody is so welcoming in the arts community, but there's also this real sense of collaboration and community just throughout the arts um, I know we had a mutual friend who works here at the symphony who kind of connected us. Um, but it's been really neat to have you come in and, and join us and kind of watch you as you've kind of maneuvered your way through some different, you know, different roles and different positions with different arts organizations. But I wanted to chat, I wanted to like kind of cruise down memory lane for a minute about some of the fun that we've had in Kansas City. And I'm going to start with my absolute favorite thing I feel like that we've done here in Kansas City for um, youth programming. And that was we did we worked together on a Peter and the Wolf performance. And we've done a few different versions of Peter and the Wolf. I'm going to skip to the second one because you know, we met, I fell in love with you. I love your style. I loved how committed you are. And so this made us made me want to kind of explore the second one. But we did a Peter and the Wolf with mascots from all of the Kansas City sporting teams. And it was like the perfect fit, the most perfect Peter and the Wolf that has ever been done. We had Alex played Peter for the first show that we did. And then we had the Wolf, which was Casey Wolf from the Chiefs. And then we had the Cat, which was Slugger from the Royals. The Bird and the Duck were Big J and Baby J from KU. We had K-State was there, UMKC was there as the Hunters, the Mavericks mascot. I mean, like, it's so much fun. And they came out and it was so silly and so amazing. And I'm telling you, so much of that came from your just your delivery of the, the first time we went through Peter and the Wolf, just kind of in its standard presentation. And I was like, we could do more than this. Like, we could do more. And then we came up with this, which was awesome. It, it was such a, an outside-the-box idea, but such a big idea. I love yeah. big ideas. I like it when people go big and bold, and this might fail, or it could be the most successful thing. And I was just so... I, first of all, I was amazed at the ability of these mm -hmm. mascots, and I gained a new appreciation for what it means to be a mascot. I mean, these are physical theater performers. These are clowns. Mm -hmm. And it was so exciting because there was an element of, throughout the entire performance concert, there was an element of, what are they going to do next? <laughs> we rehearsed with them. They knew what their track was. But you get them in front of an audience and they start to ham mm -hmm. it up and they start to pull things out of their bag of tricks. And so I am there as the 
We had the conductor conductor, but we had the performance conductor, right. myself, that was the actor that was trying to corral everything. <laughs> and I'm trying to uh, go through the whole concert poised and in control. And the entire time, there's always a part of me thinking, what is going to happen next? <laughs> you turn, you look around and Slugger is in someone's lap. Uh-huh. And, and it's like, oh, oh okay, okay, all right, we're going we're gonna to spend some time with this little bit here. <laughs> and it was just so magical to watch the audience just get it so enraptured. And what I loved, I loved so much about that concert in particular, but also I hope that it brought people who don't normally go to the symphony to come watch it, sports fans. And so to see sports fans watch their favorite characters interacting with them with classical symphonic music. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So special. And I think we only did that one maybe just once. So we did that one once and then we did the one where um where Mesner designed um a, a Peter costume. So there was right. that was the second iteration of it. So we did yes. we did two of those with mascots. I, exactly. Several years and, and apart. That first, yeah. That first run, and each of those were just one time, if I remember correctly. Exactly. Yeah, it was just, just a single show. Yeah, just one and done. And that's always amazing yeah. to me. <laughs> the, the amount of work that goes into a one and done show. Kind of like when we did uh, Around the World in 80 oh Days. Oh my gosh, we have to talk uh, about that too. So much time went into that. And then one hour later, it's ephemeral and it just disappears. You know, I love that we're talking about this now too, because I have never really put that together. In the in the orchestral world, that's just kind of what you do. I mean, you do a show of, you know, a classical series show where you do a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it's done. Um, you know, a pop series is pretty much the same. Family series, some, t- some orchestras do two performances, some do one. But when you're an actor and you're, you know, doing a run of a play, you're not just going to do it one time. You're going to do it for weeks and hopefully for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I never thought about that, you know, that mindset for you. That must have been a challenge to kind of reevaluate what what we were actually doing. Well, it, it made it uh, even more special. Yeah. And, and theater is, is ephemeral. It's going to dissipate at some point, right. and it's going to be kind of like it never even happened. It only lives in our memories. But uh, for something like the, the symphony, it's even more fleeting. And that was just such an eye-opening experience for me. And it, it again, it just makes the time that you have with the story even more special. Yeah. You know, with the mascots, I remember when we, because you also very generously helped kind of direct the program as well. And I remember you and I talking about, okay, we're kind of standing on the stage pre-rehearsal, kind of in like a pre-tech rehearsal and looking around and examining, okay, so they could go here or the mascots could go here, but I don't know if they'd be able to run up these steps. And I don't know if they'd be able to get to this. Oh, dear Lord, did they get to anywhere and everywhere? By I remember at one point Slugger was like crawling up the side, like the walls, and we were just like, oh, okay, there are no rules here. I see. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what I love about working with you all. And I feel like the Nelson is the same way. Uh, we'll come up with big ideas. Yeah. Usually I will start really big, and I just need people to say, okay, Let's let's shave this off a little bit. Let's hone it in. But with things like the mascots, yeah, we had people popping out, 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 
in and out of every place. The uh, the bird at the very end, the dock, uh-huh, uh-huh. was on that that organ, yep. uh, suspended way up high on the organ. It's yep. like, oh my gosh, we are embracing the space. Yeah. And, and sure. I'm a huge fan of things like that. Yeah. All right. So we're talking big ideas. So you've mentioned Around the World in 80 Days. This is another of like my certainly in my top 10, if not top five favorite things we've done here in Kansas City. And you came to us with an idea about adapting a story from public domain and setting music to that. And we kind of worked together on, uh, we agreed on Around the World in 80 Days would be a great start to that. It was something that existed that we could work with and kind of mold to be what we could accomplish in the hall. And you and I worked together, you kind of pulled the text and we decided on the text that we wanted to use. And then we we selected music from just standard orchestral repertoire for each of these um, scenes that we wanted to so it was kind of a semi-staged play with orchestral accompaniment from standard orchestral repertoire and that you want to talk a ton of work for one hour of payoff <laughs> I think that might be the the number one ultimate moment for me yeah it, it was very intense and that's why we need to resurrect it eventually we, yes. we need to do it again we put in all this work so let's see <laughs> if we can squeeze a little more milk out of it i tell you uh, what our librarian fabrice who's incredible he did so much work for that and he's still sitting on he created a book for that just it has all the music in it so musicians could just turn the page and you know they'd go from playing prokofiev's romeo and juliet montagues and capulets to copeland's billy the kid and it would all just be in one book and they could you know just flip through it i know we still have that so it's on tape now we're gonna do it again <laughs> we will it, it is in the stars yeah that was massive and it was it was massive for the actors too yeah because again they were everywhere yeah. alex just can't stage something in a small space he needs to <laughs> if you give him a big space he's going to want to fill it and so i had poor damian blake who is a fantastic physical theater Absolutely. performer here in this city and oh my gosh i feel so bad i just i put him through it he was it was basically the lead in that which means <laughs> You got a lot of physical work to do. And I thought that that was so special because we did have a narrator. Walter mm-hmm. Coppage narrated it. Mm-hmm. But other than that, the characters were all nonverbal. Right. And and, and I, I, I love that so much because it, I hopefully that helped to illuminate the music yep. and, 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 and make the music so it wasn't so secondary. Yep. You know, if we added dialogue, you know, I think that it would have... I don't know. I've, I felt like we struck a really nice balance with that show. I think that's one of the things that's so special about working with you is that you really consider those things. And, you know, obviously we want the music to be front and center. That's what we do. And that's who we are. And and the fact that you consider that even on your own without any coaching or kind of direction from the symphony is why we keep coming back to Alex Espy to, <laughs> to come work with. Because, I mean, it's just the most fun. There's one that stands out to me, and I don't know if this will be the same one that stands out to you. You mentioned that when you were three and four, you built stuff out of wood, and we were doing a show, and Alex came, and he was, um, was that the remarkable Farkle McBride show with the... I I think so. Yeah. I I, I think so. Yeah. So John Lithgow, the actor, wrote um, uh, the text for this uh, this story, the remarkable... 
He wrote it, right? Yes. Yes. The Remarkable Farkle McBride. And then mm-hmm. it was orchestrated and um, with a narrator. And so you came and did that, which was a great thing. But my favorite part about that show was that uh, we were discussing, you know, different story elements. And one of the story elements was characters. And Alex showed up to the rehearsal with this, like, huge, like, bigger than a refrigerator box, cardboard contraption that you had put together with all sorts of quite literally bells and whistles and colors and stuff. And we, uh, our stage crew had to move it onto the stage on and off the stage every time, but we did it to, um, uh, the March of the Toys from Babes in Toyland, and Alex would go into the into the box, and it was the what did we call it? The toy machine? Uh, what was it? Oh, I've, uh, oh, I forget. Basically, uh, the concept was Alex would go in, and then he would come out a a toy and a different kind of toy. So you came out as a superhero. Superhero. I was a robot, and then I was I was a little doll, a, a little, little blonde haired doll, doll uh-huh. in a dress. <laughs> <laughs> which was which was amazing but the kids I, like if if teachers are going to go back and reference stuff from education concerts that we done that one comes up always because it was so visual without taking away from the music which is exactly what we're looking for awesome yeah. Th- that was one of my favorite things as well and i love that I, I believe that you you basically just said okay we want to use this piece yeah. Do, what do you what yes. yeah what do you want to do with it and it's like oh that's a dangerous thing to ask me and i remember that box we we kept on having to shave it down yep. <laughs> it was like alex you got to you got to make this thing smaller it's like well, it has, okay let me get you know, my box cutter it has to fit cutter. through doorways and you know well, like exactly and the main thing was as long as my body fit into it and all right. of these costumes those were just flat pieces i made those yeah. just out of flat pieces and they had straps but what was extra special about that was it was audience participation. Yeah. And all of the kids were up and moving their bodies. And we made it so each of the different characters' movements were different. Right. We tried to make them, you know, you got the staccato of the, the robot mm-hmm. and then the doll moves a little bit differently. And so to see a sea of, what, 1,500 kids yep all mimicking what you're doing with an orchestra of how many dozens of people behind you. It is just the most powerful and magical experiences. I'm glad that that was one of your favorites as well, because it was one of the smaller things we did. And it was just one one bit within a larger concert. But I think that is a testament to small can be powerful. and, And it doesn't have to always be a big thing where... You've got mascots coming in and right. out of all sorts of places. All you need is a cardboard box in your imagination. But isn't that like what every parent says is true? Is like, don't invest in the big stuff. Like kids are just fine with like a some pots and pans or a cardboard box or a you know a, a bowl that they can drum on. Like it's well, the it, little exactly. stuff. Yeah, and I have over the years. I, I love cardboard. As far as my uh-huh. builder, my builder self goes. It, it's cardboard, and I uh, that's one of my favorite materials to use. And it's just so malleable. And from a kid's standpoint, there's so much that a kid can do with it. Yeah. A box becomes a spaceship, or it becomes your safe space. You know, when you talk about social-emotional things, if a kid just needs a little bit of time to themselves, I remember when I was a kid, I'd just get inside of a box until, <laughs> until I calmed myself down. Okay, so... so- t- I'm I'm glad that we went there because I know and and I'm sure I don't even begin to know the half of of your 
exploration of cardboard cities and stuff. But I do know um, in your time when you worked with um, the St. Mark's Center for United Inner City Services, which I, I still cannot imagine how those kids were so lucky to have gotten to work with you for as long as, as you were there. So I want to hear about that. But as, as a transition into that, you did like a whole cardboard city for them, right? I remember you telling me at one point, like it was going to be like they had the parents coming in and the parents were going to come see their city, but you made an entire city out of cardboard. Yeah. We spent maybe two months working on this. At St. Mark, there is a big... Now, St. Mark, my initial contract was only three months. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I was uh, primarily there just to do some type of dramatic play performance, in quotations, with the kids. Uh, but three months turned into three years. It was just so much fun, and we were all having such a good time. And and so uh, I extended my stay there. And one of the biggest things we did was uh, was Cardboard City. And I went to a mattress store, and I got uh, these huge mattress boxes. And mattress boxes are in, like, two parts. And when you open them up, they can... Uh, they can kind of stand up on their own and uh-huh. kind of like an L shape if you're looking at it from above. And so those L shaped cardboard boxes became like walls mm-hmm. of of businesses, of, of storefronts. And so we would cut doors out of them and we would cut windows and each room of the older kids got to decide what they wanted their building to be. So we had a barber shop and we had a pizza shop, and we had a toy store, um, and I, I think we had maybe a pet store, and everything inside it was created by the kids. So in the barber shop, they took oversized popsicle sticks, just put little lines on it, and you've got yourself a comb. Mm-hmm. And they were making hair dryers, and and after a while, and this is what I love, I love not when I'm working with kids, I love to not necessarily be, I don't want it to seem like I'm the leader. Mm-hmm. I want it to very much feel like the kids are in charge and the kids are running this and I'm just there to make sure no one cries, no one dies, and that we have ourselves a nice little structure. And so after a while, the kids just hit the ground running and it became a beast of their own. And uh, so it all culminated into a night where all the families could come and they just rotated in and out of all these little areas. We hired professional actors. So in the pizza shop, we had Bob Leinbarger who was in (laughs) Around the World in 80 Days. He was the pizza guy. And they had all these cardboard pizzas that the kids made with little cardboard toppings and everything. It was such a, a special magical experience and then the next day it all goes into the dumpster yeah it was one of those eph- eph- ephemeral ephemeral art experiences but uh yeah one of the many cardboard <laughs> projects throughout the the years of my time here at kansas city you know i love that and i love you know you say that you kind of you don't want to be the leader you want to step out of the way and i think that's one of the things that makes you so special especially 
in young education. I mean, because the, these kids were preschool, pre-K. Oh, yeah. Right? This yeah. was five all the way down. I mean, I would work with six-month-old kids. Yeah. So we had Cardboard City, and then in an- another area, we had Cardboard Village uh-huh, for, yes. the, for the little babies. <laughs> and, oh, my gosh, and we were making cardboard bridges so the babies could go through the bridges. And, yeah, it was, it was really special. I think, you know, you're so good at that, and you're so good at empowering them. I mean, you know, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not in charge of this, you be in charge of this, you're empowering them to be in control of, you know, of their own creativity. And, and even when you say, you know, like a cardboard box can be, you know, it can be a pizza shop, or it can be a safe space. I think your understanding of kids and their feelings and their emotions is something I've always admired. And you know, what you know what they need and and you also know that for something like this with a cardboard city that's something those kids can do at home everybody has access to cardboard you know and right so you know for them to be able to go home and replicate what they did with mr alex you know something they did that made them feel you know connected and and in control and you know have creative freedom over that they can do that at home is so special and such a gift to those kids. That, that's something that's always been so important to me. Uh, like, like with that cardboard, the 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 toy changing machine, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever we called it, you could you could see the hot glue drips, and yeah. <laughs> you, you could you could look at that, and you could say, "All right, I think that whoever made it did this, and then they did this, and then they added that." I, while I appreciate really polished uh, artwork that looks like something uh, that was something that is fully realized and created, and you can't see the steps, and you can't really tell what materials they are, I definitely appreciate that, but. I want something that's a little rougher, that is a little more approachable and obtainable. And so, yeah, a four-year-old can look at that and recreate it on some level. Right, right. So I knew I was going to be chatting with you, and and I started thinking about the reason that I got into doing what I do. And that's just, I have this connection with wanting kids to know more about something that makes me uh, feel such fulfillment. Uh, music to me has always been transformative. It's always been something that, um, you know, that I can turn to during emotional moments or during, you know, just if I, music is my version of the cardboard box, you know, like, yeah. I don't need to get in a box. I just need to turn on some music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious if you have any moments that stand out where you felt like, you know what? Yeah, I did. I did make it. A difference here, and I have I have one that I'd want to share, but I'm curious if you also have um, have any moments like that you're you'd want to share. Well, sure. I feel, or at least I hope that uh, I hope that there have been lots of little changes yeah. that then have snowballed into bigger changes. Yeah, you know, even. The, the smallest things, like uh, using your breath if you have a big feeling, and I know that's not directly sure. arts-related, but in the preschool world, that's such an important thing is learning how to use your breath to calm yourself down. And I can hammer that home to a kid, and then there's that one time when they take that initiative to stop themselves and to take that deep breath. Yep. And after that breath, maybe it just goes back to being a meltdown. But 
at least they had that moment where they could they stop themselves. It. Exactly. And I think that those are so special. And as far and more directly art related, in the preschool world, I'm just so interested in like the fine motor skills, mm-hmm. uh, you know, social emotional aside, but what they can physically handle. You know, three months earlier, they couldn't hold scissors. Well, now today they're holding scissors and maybe they aren't using it the completely correct way, but at least they've had a breakthrough and they are using it better than they did a few months ago. Yeah. But I'm just, um, just always... So I, I, I feel like I do maybe need to go back again a little bit to preschool, Alex, because uh, I was once told that we all live our lives in accordance to a younger version of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the person who told me that says that they have a teenager in them. And when they were a teenager, they start to get really passionate and started to get um politically active and even though they are um in their 50s now they still have that teenager that they are still nurturing and living by and i feel like i have a preschooler in me i've got that (laughs) four-year-old five-year-old in me and that's partly because i was kicked out of preschool i i was kicked out of preschool i had a record no other preschool would take me (laughs) and uh is it because you is it because you were using power tools and nails and stuff in preschool I, I was a wild child, and back in those days, there was no SEL, there was no social emotional, and so if you were a wild kid, you were just a bad kid, Yeah, and it, you weren't a kid that needed some skills, you were just a bad kid, and so that went all the way up through my high school, which I barely graduated, and there wow. was a time in my senior year when my counselor set me down and said, you know... You, your future does not look all, all that bright, essentially. Um, and so it wasn't until I got to college. I, I, I'm painting myself awfully negatively. <laughs> college, I graduated with honors. I, it, it, that, was an, that was academically a positive experience. But long story short, I do what I do today because I had those issues as a kid. Yeah. And when I'm working in the preschools and I see those little Alexes, having emotional issues, I think, well, I want to give that kid what I was not given when I was that kid's age. And when I was little, art was the only thing that could focus me. And I was obsessive about it. And so if I'm working with a preschooler that is otherwise a wild child, but you get some art materials in front of them and they start to focus themselves in, I am there for that kid whatever they want to create, however they want to create it, I'm just here to be of a support to them. Because again, it was it was rough growing up for me as far as social emotional goes. Yeah. And so uh, whatever I can do to help kids social emotionally through the arts, I, I'm, I'm going to try to do. Yeah, well, that's awesome. So every year, before this year, <laughs> every year since I've worked for the symphony uh, as part of our Young People's Concert Series, uh, I started a, a program called our Writing Challenge, and it's associated with our Young People's Concerts. And we pick a piece that's on that program, and we ask the teachers to play that for the kids in the classroom before the before the show. Uh, you know, we design curriculum around it where they have to write. Uh, it's it's a different type of writing each year. So one year it was just a a narrative and one year it was a, oh, I don't know, a poem. And one year it was a, like a journal entry and, you know, lots of different things. But there was one year where I think this one was write a letter to 
um, either your principal or your governor or the mayor of your town or the president of the United States and tell them why music is so important in school. And, you know, we were we had this big grand idea that we were going to take all those letters and we were just going to like flood <laughs> D.C. with these letters about, you know, uh, why kids want music in their classrooms. And uh, some of those actually did go there. But for each concert, we chose a winner from each of those concerts. Uh, uh, the letter that we that that we thought was the best letter that we'd received for the kids who were at that concert that day. And we notified the schools of the winners before the show so that we could recognize those students. And when uh, we chose a winner, it was a boy who wrote a story about how music basically saved saved him from, um, it was his safe space. He would go yeah. in his room and he would listen to music and it was all kinds of music. But like, you know, whenever he was feeling scared or sad, music was his safe space. And, and it was a great letter. It was very well written. And we selected it as, as the winner. And when we notified the teacher, she immediately wrote back and was like, I, I can't believe you're choosing this kid. I mean, yes, he's a very smart kid, but you know, he's virtually homeless. Mm. He has, you know, a, um, his home life is very, it, not a great situation at home. He he's, doesn't really participate a ton in class, you know, music more than other classes, like the, and they've noticed that, but, and not surprised that he had won, but just like, I want you, she wanted us to know that, to know how special it was. And then, what was so sweet about it was that the school paid to buy him a new outfit so that he could come to the symphony and be recognized. And we recognized him on stage. And for our, normally what I do, I emcee those concerts. And normally what I do is I, um, I'll i read the letter or read the winning entry and then announce the student. And our Aram Demersion was our conductor at the time. And we got to that moment and I just looked at him and I was like, I can't do this. Like, I cannot read this. <laughs> You're going to have to do it. So he, you know, he stepped in and he did it. Um, and I was just sitting there like sobbing, like doing my back to the audience. like. Um, but we ended up offering him and his family a chance to come to one of our Christmas shows. And he came and the school bought him new clothes so, he, so that he could have, you know, nice, nice dress pants and like a button down shirt to come to the symphony. And it was one of those things that I think, I don't think that we did anything necessarily to do it, but just really knowing and seeing what music means to people and how something just that we all can take for granted can have so much meaning to any people of any age, but especially somebody who, you know, is nine or 10 years old was, I, I will remember that forever. And that was, you know, at this point, probably eight years ago. Um, and it's something I think about every time our writing challenge comes along. It's super mm -hmm. special. Oh my gosh, that is, I get a little emotional just hearing about that. I know, that. I'm, I'm here, well, I'm done, wipe my tears it, a little bit. It, and, and you also provided the opportunity for them to voice their right. opinion. And that is so huge. I mean, th this person might not have been able to, might not have ever been asked a right. question like that. So how powerful to give yeah. them the space to voice their voice their thoughts and opinions. Yeah. I think that's so important for young people. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that also hits home. You, you never know. They're, they're just, you never know a kid's true story and you never know what is going on, truly what's going on in their personal lives. Right. Uh, and um, that's why the, we, we need to foster all of them. You know, I think, again, I think back to bad little Alex. Well, there were, <laughs> there were some adults that positively fostered me. There were a lot that I was too much for, but the ones that saw those special moments in me. Yeah. 
All right. So what are you up to now? You're at um, you're at the Mesner Puppet Theater now. Yes. You're doing all sorts of awesome digital content. But yeah, what what's been going on? Yeah, it's been quite a year. So right before, so I have been with Mesner Puppet Theater for about four years now, and um, we had right before COVID or a few months before COVID. We brought on Megan Henry, and mm-hmm. Megan Henry is our uh, producing artistic director. And I knew Megan back in the Coterie days when she was the education director. Mm-hmm. And she, and this was over 10 years ago, that's when I really started to turn the corner on my teaching artist skills. And before Megan came along, it was much more freeform play and fun. And of course I had activities, of course there was structure, but I didn't fully understand what it meant to be a teaching artist. Mm -hmm. And so Megan, in the delicate way that she has, she slowly molded me into the teaching artist that I needed to be. I can still have fun, but I got to have a little bit more structure. (laughs) So she came on staff as the producing artistic director, and we had all of these plans. We were just some amazing outside-the-box ideas, but it was all pre-COVID ideas. And then COVID hit, and uh, we we were furloughed just for a few weeks, but we came back and we hit the ground running yeah. doing virtual digital stuff. And we're so lucky that uh, puppetry and puppets have been in the television and virtual world for as long as those mediums have been around. Mm-hmm. And so it is so much easier for a puppet theater to pivot towards digital and just online stuff, I think much easier than traditional theater where you're using your bodies. And and then it becomes a question of, well, well, what is theater? Is theater in person or can it be virtual? That's all a discussion for, for another time. But one of our main things was we decided to put a lot, most of our eggs in this um, social emotional package series. And it's called In the Workshop, It is eight episodes, and uh, each episode focuses on some social-emotional skills. It all takes place in this otherworldly, magical art workshop. And there's a little dog character, and there's a mouse, and there's a bird, and there's even a wood plank that's a builder. And they, uh, they spend the series collaborating, brainstorming, having to use their words when they have big feelings, having to use their looking eyes, all of these social-emotional things that, that we teach kids. And so it's uh, it's an episode, and each episode comes with lesson plans and study guides and, pr- and professional development videos, all sorts of things. And so uh, it is a very special project. And just today, before we met, I started to wrap up all of the lesson plans because we're about to unleash our eighth and last episode at the end of the week. Uh, And so we've started to release it to schools and we are working with several schools. We're considering this first year our pilot so we can learn how to shape it and hone it and make it better for next year. But uh, it's already in the classrooms and we're already getting great feedback and it's really fun. I go into some of those classes so they not only get to see me on TV, as they say, but they get to see me live in person. And then uh, lots of other digital and virtual things. We've got uh, full shows that are in the can that if people want a full show virtually, call us up. 
we've got a show for you. It's unlimited for a week. And we have this fun uh, 30 minute Zoom experience where it's live and it's with a puppet and the participants go on a scavenger hunt and in the house scavenger hunt oh, cool. with this puppet and they are uh they're getting socks that we then turn into sock puppets but it's live and it's interactive so they get to talk with the puppet characters and the puppets talk back to them so it, in in lots of ways we are far busier yep. than we were pre-COVID. I hear that for sure. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's amazing. Part of me thought, ooh, can I coast through all of this? Nope, <laughs> nope there is sure no can't. coasting. If anything else, you are more on your toes and you got to be more on the ball because the pivot to digital, and, uh, and you all know this, I'm sure, the yeah. pivot to digital, you got to pivot your brain and you got to rewire your brain. And I'm an old person and I've done this <laughs> for 25 years a certain way and now all of a sudden now you've got to rethink how you've done the last 25 years so that's been quite quite an experience so how do people get more information about what you guys are doing at mesner do they go to your website do they call you what do we do uh yep uh I, it's uh get onto the website there's more information or just send me a direct email at alex at mesnerpuppets.org and i'll send you to the right person there's only three people on staff so if you send it to me there's a one in third chance that you're going to the <laughs> you're right gonna person. You're going to get you. <laughs> Alex, it's so great to catch up with you. I, I, you're, this just makes my heart so happy. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today and reminisce with me. And I'm always so inspired by the work that you do. And, well, it, and um, vice versa. I, I thank you. And, and I learn from every experience that I have. And I've learned so much from you as an education director, from one education director to another. When I'm on site at the Kaufman, I absorb what you do, <laughs> all of the techniques and all of the ways that you can uh, capture the audience's attention. So I, I, I appreciate you in my life. And I hope that one day soon we can work together again. Absolutely. Can't wait. Well, I can't let you go without the famous tagline, tag question that comes on the end of each of these episodes. And um, it's a two-part question. So the first question is, we're on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. So I, I have to know, what is your favorite drink? Uh, whether that's alcoholic, non-alcoholic, sweet, savory, sour, whatever. And then if you were to walk in to a bar and Beethoven was sitting at the bar, what would you ask him? Well, I, I, I am boring. I am a non-alcoholic drinker. That's not boring. So, but if the bartender, when I'm with Beethoven, if they wanted to whip something non-alcoholic up that still maybe tasted like a fancy alcoholic drink, I would, definitely, I would definitely take that. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I, I don't even drink soda. I know that's so boring. I love coffee. Maybe if uh, Beethoven, because I'm also not necessarily a night owl. I'm much more of a morning person. So if Beethoven wanted to meet me in the morning at a coffee shop. There you go. I would totally do that. I would have some coffee with them. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, I'm kind of boring as far as the libations go. <laughs> not boring at all. Everybody needs a good cup of coffee. Uh, I, I feel like I have a million questions. Like, how? How, how, how did you do it? As, as you know, I'm not from the musical world. I, I don't sing. I, I play no instruments. So just in general, 
uh, when I enter your world, your symphonic world, I just wonder, uh, uh, how do you all do this? Uh, Beethoven, how, how did you write that music? And, and what, what you heard in your head, is that really what you were able to put on the paper uh, and to actually actually realize? So I, I'm, I'm just endlessly amazed with the the, the world of, of, of symphony and classical music and I, I'm just appreciative that I hadn't have opportunities as a non-musical person to uh, explore that world and to explore my creativity within that world. That is a very good question about <laughs> Beethoven. I don't know if I gave you a great answer. You gave a perfect answer. How, how did you how how? That's a perfect answer. Well Alex thanks so much for, for being here, and I can't wait to see you in person again soon. So one of the beautiful things about being a musician is that you often get the opportunity to connect with the most fascinating people you might otherwise get to know. I've certainly experienced that in knowing Alex and getting to work with Alex these last 10 years. Next week, Mike is going to sit down with a longtime friend of the symphony, a devoted Royals fan, a professionally trained organist and harpsichordist, and pastor at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, Father Paul Turner. Father Paul and Mike have enjoyed many musical collaborations over the years, along with other members of the Kansas City Symphony. We'll learn all about this true Renaissance man and how faith and music intersect in his life of service next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. <laughs> <laughs>